What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What the hell is this thing? The lasso of Hestia compels you to reveal the truth. But it's really hot. What is your mission? I'm really excited about our special guest for this week's review of Wonder Woman, Josh. Special guest? Yeah, the the lasso. The lasso of Hestia. Oh, hey, doesn't matter how tight you pull that thing, I'm not going to say that there's chemistry between Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean in The Terminator. Come on. Didn't you see Wonder Woman? Don't you know how powerful the lasso is? I know. I won't be able to lie underneath it. Well, we will get to our review of Wonder Woman minus the lasso, plus our top five religious experiences at the movies. That and more. Being so boring. Ahead on film spotting. No, we are not going to relitigate the Terminator, that sacred cow discussion from a few weeks ago. We need to move on, Josh, and move on. We are going to do as we celebrate the pending release of your book, your debut as an author, at least in book form, Movies Are Prayers. Yeah, a week from today as we record now on Tuesday. Yeah. June 13th is the official release date. We thought we would commemorate that. We would promote it by doing a tie-in top five, what we're calling our movie-related religious experiences. Much more about that later in the show. We will also play my conversation with Trey Edward Schultz. We didn't even promote this last week because it was still coming together, but... It did come together, and I'm really glad I had a chance to sit down with the writer-director of the highly anticipated horror film It Comes at Night, which opens wide this weekend. Schultz may be even better known to film spotting listeners as the director of last year's Golden Brick nominee. It was actually our runner-up, Cresha, and Schultz had a great answer, Josh, when I asked him about his own favorite religious experience at the movies. We're going to actually hear that when we get to our picks. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. We will also debut at the end of that interview, Josh, the Film Spotting Five. What's this? It's a new thing that Sam and I came up with. The first time hearing of it. Well, we'd always talked about maybe some kind of hook, a little questionnaire that we could basically ask any interview subject. Ah, okay. we thought it was a good idea. He, of course, is the master who came up with the questions. And I can say, having done two of these now, One with Trey, one with another director we'll talk about in the next week or so. It's worth it. It's paid off. The responses have been fantastic. I like it. We have actually gleaned some really great nuggets out of these seemingly innocuous questions. No, it's a great idea because the challenge with interviews, even as I'm on the other end Mm -hmm. doing interviews for the book, are to have original things to say about something you've been talking about repeatedly. So if you have unique questions or things that throw people off even a little bit— can make for good conversation. Indeed. So we will hear Trey's answers to those questions here a bit later as well. But first, for moviegoers starved for superhero films with a female lead, Wonder Woman had the potential to be its own religious experience. Does it live up to those expectations? Well, allow us two dudes to explain. The gods gave us many gifts. One day you'll know them all. This is where we keep them. It's beautiful. Who would wield it? Only the fiercest among us even could. And that is not you, Diana. You will train her harder than any Amazon before her. Five times harder. 
ten times harder. Never let your guard down. You expect the battle to be fair! Until she is better than even you. But she must never know the truth about what she is. So I saw Wonder Woman with my own Wonder Women. Debbie and I went out with our two daughters on opening day, and I should say that it mostly met their feminist standards, which is probably more important than whether or not it met mine. We'll get to the movie's version of feminism, I'm sure, but let's start somewhere else for our Wonder Woman conversation, Adam. Based on the comic book character who debuted around 1941, this adaptation stars Gal Gadot from the Fast and Furious franchise. That's right. We are going with Gadot because we heard her say that on Jimmy Kimmel. Confirmed. We can show you the link. That's how she pronounces her name. I will throw out there, though, Josh, that I listened to our friend Mikado Murphy from The New York Times, his anatomy of a scene with the director of Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins. And in it, she refers to her star as Gal Gadot. Somebody needs like to get the her rest of the world. The film so, spotting pronunciation guide. I think some people have just decided we're going to westernize that name. But for our purposes, we're going with the authentic Gadot. Gadot it is. Mm-hmm. The director you mentioned, Patty Jenkins, she is of the Oscar-winning and decidedly more reality-based 2003 film Monster. Now, this Wonder Woman version stays fairly close to the original comic, where American pilot Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, crashes his plane off the coast of an island populated by warrior women, including Gadot's Diana. When she learns of the horrors of World War I taking place outside their realm, Diana insists on accompanying Trevor to the front. So obviously Wonder Woman feels fresh, Adam, simply by the fact that Diana is the hero figure here, not the romantic interest, not the sidekick, not the eye candy. Pine, I think, gets those parts this time. Yeah. Aside from this distinction, though, was there anything else that struck you as novel or unique about the film? Or was this simply someone of a different sex going through the same old superhero emotions? Well, that's a trick question, isn't it? Because the answer is both. Yes, there's something unique about it beyond just the gender of the superhero. And even that's something I'm hesitant to overplay too much because we absolutely unequivocally need more movies of all kinds with female leads. But what's really new here is that she's a superhero. She's not just an action star. We've seen Ripley and The Bride and Katniss Everdeen, among others. And while they're all badass heroines, not one of them would really have a chance, let's say, against Thor. Wonder Woman not only would have a chance, she might just win. I think even we saw earlier this week, Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth, suggests that, yes, Wonder Woman could take him. And I do think, Josh, there's value certainly in young girls and boys seeing that type of a hero, not just Batman, Superman, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and so on. And we'll probably get to a little bit more on that a bit later. What also stands out, though, in contrast to most of those other comic book movies, and in sharp contrast, certainly, to the other DC movies. I'm thinking of Man of Steel. I'm thinking of Dawn of Justice. I'm not really thinking of Suicide Squad because I haven't seen it, but from what I've heard, it fits the bill, is the sense of optimism and Mm. the sense of compassion that this film and its hero exude, which I welcome. I do want to be fair. I'm not sure why I want to be fair to these movies, but I want to note that even though I think those films, Man of Steel and Dawn of Justice, are largely failures, I don't fault them necessarily for going with darker material. They've chosen to place Batman and Superman within a modern context. These are heroes who feel the weight of the world on their shoulders and have witnessed their share of horrors. So, of course, they're going to brood a little bit. And Wonder Woman is set in the past. There are villains, but they're just there mainly to serve the plot. We're not really witnessing a bunch of atrocities. So 
Wonder Woman, unlike them, she's entering a world that is in disarray, but is completely unfamiliar to her. So she's naive at first about what impact she alone can have. She thinks she's going to stop a brutal war, sure, and save lives and make the world a utopia like the island that she comes from. Batman and Superman are basically just trying to keep millions of people from dying, it seems. So there is an inherent fantasy element to this superhero tale and all the hope that comes with that fantasy element that is refreshing. Is it so refreshing that it's enough to make up for the same issue that befalls so many of these superhero movies, a really lousy finale? I want so badly to say it is, but I don't want you to lasso me. So I'm going to tell the truth and say, no, it's not. It's just not. Yeah, we'll get to the finale and I can maybe talk about how it's a little disappointing for me as well. But I think you're hitting on what I would say alongside the fact that this is a female superhero lead and the important distinction of that is the remarkable aspect of Wonder Woman. And I would say rather than optimism, though that's a good word for it, I found it to be joyful. Mm -hmm. And specifically, Gadot's performance to latch onto the sense of joy that would come with having superpowers. I mean, it's as if this last bunch of films has forgotten, and I think we'll probably get this in the Spider-Man movie too, from Mm -hmm. what I've seen of it and from what I know from that character's appearance in Captain America Civil War. But here, Gadot is that first scene in training where she brings the cuffs together and they unleash this blast of power that she didn't at that point quite know she had. And she looks surprised and then she just grins. And from that moment on, I I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. And that's okay. Sure. You're right. It it doesn't, this doesn't have to be a template for all superhero movies. I enjoyed Nolan's Batman films, and they're very dark. But I'm ready for something like this. I think it fits this character quite well. I think it fits Gadot as a performer. And you'll notice that she works that smile into a lot of scenes, even when she gets to World War One, And she's confronted with a lot of horrors and a lot of grimness. And she's stoic in scenes when she has to be in the face of that stuff. But there is also, when you think about the sequence of them saving that village from the Germans, mm-hmm. and they celebrate afterwards. Yes. And she gathers with the people and, and smiles as well. She is enjoying being this powerful. And that's okay. It's fun to watch. And it made... A distinctive experience for me, at least compared to a lot of the superhero films we've been seeing. I'm just enjoying discovering this new world. That's true, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting away from this island that she'd grown up on and realizing there's more out there. I would also a couple of other things quickly that I think set this apart from some of the other recent superhero films. You said compassion. I think we see that in that first real battle scene on the beach between the Amazons and the Germans who are pursuing Pine's pilot. That begins with a focus, a close-up on a single bullet, which we follow, Mm -hmm. that causes a single death. And in the world of superhero movies now, that's huge because it recognizes that there is individual loss to the fighting that is going on. And so casualties matter from that point on. Even as the fighting gets bigger and bigger, the movie has already recognized loss in a Mm -hmm. way that makes those have a certain weight. And a tiny touch that I think we only get at the beginning for a few minutes, but I just loved, was when Diana's mother, played by Connie Nielsen quite well, 
gives her this mythology of her past yes. where she's part of a lineage that includes Ares and Zeus. Mm-hmm. And and we see these in they're, – they're almost like paintings. I thought of – I think it might be Rubens' paintings of mythological figures. But they, they to start life. to move mm-hmm. ever so slightly. At, at first, you're like, wait, is that moving? Um, and then they, they move more and you, and you understand what's going on. And it's just this beautiful way of taking care of what weighs down so many movies like this. Right. Exposition. Right. And you could imagine them very well having Connie Nielsen just tell her that whole story or tell her that story with cuts to it actually happening, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. This way, melding the reality with that fantasy, with the art, is actually really one of the most visually pleasing parts of the film, I think. And I would add to that the scene you describe where you not only feel the weight of the loss, the weight of the casualties in that battle, which I agree is important, but just the way that entire action sequence, that first battle is shot, is really well done. Yeah, it's fantastic. Probably my favorite scene. Yeah, it might be mine as well. Now, you mentioned her grinning at that moment where her bracelets clank together and she all of a sudden discovers power she didn't know she had. That grin may or may not be there. I seem to recall that kind of expression on her face, but I also feel like it was this look of just pure astonishment and almost fear, Josh, because it's the moment where she realizes, I think for the first time, that there's something about her that makes her very different than all of these other Amazon women. And I actually think that the way that is handled in terms of how much of an understanding she has, and I know there's a big secret here about her relationship to the gods and this is revealed later and there are plot reasons for that but i still feel like there's some information that's doled out that she reacts to and then the movie just moves on so quickly and it comes back to it occasionally and then the movie just moves on to other things and there's never a clear sense that either diana really understands what she's capable of or what her true powers are. And I think there are also times where I'm not sure the movie seems to really understand what her true powers are and what she's capable of. She oscillates between being a Wonder Woman, an enhanced human in a lot of ways, like a Steve Rogers, and being a god. And I wish that maybe there was a little bit more consistency there. Yeah, or or clarity. I'd agree. Maybe it's there in the film, but Mm -hmm. in first viewing for me, I couldn't follow all of that either and was wondering even if her mother was misleading her at one right. point or that I agree that wasn't yeah. quite clear. So the big issue though for me as I touched on is this finale because at some point this movie stops being a pretty compelling origin story and I'm typically a big fan of origin stories and it just becomes another superhero movie with all the requisite beats. And unfortunately, I think here the beats are also a little bit off. And I will say, this is my issue. I'm certainly not alone. I've picked up on this from a few other people. You mentioned that you had some issues with the ending as well, but maybe I get hung up on it a little bit more than others because I have a hard time, for whatever reason, getting past what I perceive to be these major storytelling missteps. It starts before we get to the big showdown at the end with the villain, but as everything gets bigger and more chaotic here, I think those storytelling problems mount as well. And I'm not going to spoil or waste everyone's time listing all of the transgressions here. Suffice it to say that poor Sam has already heard 80% of them over email. But for me, there's almost nothing about the last 20 to 30 minutes of this film that really makes any sense Hmm. or is satisfying at all in both the choices we see characters making and things they're saying, but also in just the way it's presented visually in terms of where characters are in the space. It's a mess. And too much of a mess for me. Again, I'm the one who gets particularly hung up on these issues because no matter how good the acting is or how much I like the portrayal of a character, I'm not as fully invested when I feel like the script is sabotaging them, when I can't be as invested in them and what they're doing. But I keep saying, 
this is maybe my issue because I wonder, Josh, if it's a case of not that this movie isn't for me. I'm certainly aware that men and women and people of all ages are enjoying this movie, so I can't paint with a broad brush and say it was intended for one target group that I don't fit into. But what I can't shake, as I'm very aware that I'm awash in my own Anton egoness here, is the reaction of the girl in front of me as I was walking out of the theater. She couldn't have been more than five or six, and I'm just following her out of the theater, and I think her grandma was in front of her, and we emerge out into the light and she is just bustling with energy and she is kicking and she is punching (laughs) at the air and she says to her grandma we just saw wonder woman and she's so excited she was basically little diana from the beginning of the film sneaking away from her school to go and watch the amazon women train and fight and we got an email as well from aaron i'm gonna go with riney in Hibbing, Minnesota, who said, I'm happy to report that Wonder Woman has, in fact, listed at least one religious experience. My wife, Jill, saw the movie with our 10-year-old daughter and was profoundly moved by the experience. She said that the portrayal of Diana as a woman of passion, conviction, and courage resonated with her on a deep spiritual level, and sharing it with our daughter, who was absolutely giddy with delight afterward, made the experience all the more meaningful. So I suppose, despite my misgivings about this film and its structure and its storytelling and the way some of the action is handled. The fact is I'm elated that people are having that experience with the movie. Well, uh, let me frame it this way for you. Imagine if you had never had, I don't know, Han Solo mm-hmm. or Indiana Jones yeah. and or that, Superman. That's the or Superman, whoever it might have been when you were that age and you saw someone who at least you connected with because it was a boy. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what little girls are experiencing right now. And I shouldn't even say little girls. What you're describing with that kid. It's kind of how Debbie came out of the movie. She was practicing the leg kicks and thought, you know, do you think I could learn how to do that? And I said, let's let her after you learn how to play the bass. This is, yeah, put it on the list. Uh, but this is also the woman who, you know, we come out of the Fast and Furious movies, and I don't let her drive. She wants to buy a Dodge Charger I, I with that Emmy. Let her drive. So I guess she's just affected by films that way, and and that makes total sense. That little girls, yeah. and and that's awesome. That that is very cool because they have not had the chance to do that very often. So. so so that starts to get us into the the feminist conversation a little bit, but I want to back up to the finale because I didn't have quite as many problems with it okay. as you did. I think they are story-related, partly, and for me, maybe this is what you're hinting at. It has to do with the relationship between Pine and Gadot because I think both of them are good, and I think they have chemistry together, but the movie wants them to be doing different things at different times and treat each other differently. That There's never a firm handle on what that should be. For me, the romance then didn't really fly, and that comes into play a little bit in the finale. I also think, for me, the finale is just, if a finale set at night, my expectations lower because the CGI is going to be worse. Mm-hmm. The special effects are going to be amped up. If it's raining, even, you know, I'm really lowering my expectations. I think that's what's so fantastic about that beach battle right. is it's the bright sunlight and the cinematography on the island is way sunnier than anything we see in World War One. Appropriately, things get a little sepia tinged. Mm-hmm. Um, so just having that brightness and clarity to that beach battle, we don't get at this climax on an airfield at night. And you just lose something there when you get more a sense of how much of this is being created 
in a computer and you also have mm-hmm. powers being thrown at each other. Right. It gets less physical. So those yeah. were those were some of my concerns. But there is a really interesting moment there that is key to this character that's distinctive to this character where she shows a bit of mercy. Yeah, see, this is where we disagree. I thought that that made her more compelling, not only as a superhero, but also in this conversation that's going on in the movie about whether or not humans even deserve her, right? Mm -hmm. Do they, why would she bother? This is a question I had, like, why bother leaving that island, right? You're curious, Mm -hmm. but still things are a mess out there. And that's essentially what an adversary tells her, like they don't deserve you. So I like the back and forth of that idea throughout the film. And I think it comes to a nice turning point in that gesture of mercy that she offers. But um, other than that, you know, there's certainly some problems in that finale. Yeah, the problem is that that act of mercy that you're referring to is not believable in any way. First, it's not set up properly, so we actually have no idea really why that character is in that position to need to be saved in the first place. It's really awkwardly staged in every way. And then beyond that, there's no sense, there's absolutely no sense, I defy any viewer to tell me that there's even a hint that Diana would actually do something to harm this woman. At this point in the film, there's no way we believe that or have any doubt about her levels of compassion and love for humanity, even as she's discovered some truths that are hard truths. I simply didn't buy any part of that act of mercy. And Pine, for me, and what happens with him and their relationship is actually weighed down on the list at the end of the film. But it's one of the things I did want to ask you. There was a part of me that really did feel like a strength of the film was the way they weren't going to force this romance. And for the longest time, they don't. And then all of a sudden, we get the door closed, and it seems that Steve and Wonder Woman are going to get intimate. And then the movie tries to use that at the end, in terms of the script, to really sell a notion of love that felt really forced to me and didn't work at all. And I actually did want to ask you, did you feel like the movie would have been better served had they left out that romance angle completely. Why did they even need to do it? Yeah, I mean, I would have been fine if they had left it in and done it well. That's the problem Mm -hmm. because, and you just mentioned it, they also have them working as colleagues. So that's one relationship as colleagues. And it's not a transformation where they get to know each other better. It's like, okay, now we have to have the romance. It's very awkward. And then they also have those fish out of water scenes, which, you know, mildly funny, I guess. That's a different relationship between them too. Like he's almost laughing at her there. So I think there, there was not a firm handle on how they wanted those to to relate to each other or how they wanted their relationship to grow. But just real quickly to go back to that, you know, note you made about the character who receives the gesture mm-hmm. of mercy. I, I think you maybe felt like you have a better handle on Diana than what she knows about herself, because I did see that trajectory throughout the film of her trying to figure out who am I? What am I going to do with these powers? And then the third question is, and how does it relate to all of these other humans I've now come to know? So I did see it as a, a defining character moment for her. I agree. Okay, the, logi- but, the logistics of yeah, how the she logistics, gets there. But beyond that, know. I'll just ask, beyond probably being able to predict how the moment would go because you know you're sitting in an audience watching a movie, did you really have any moment where you thought, oh, she might do this? I don't know if I had that much time to think about it. I mean, it was was moving pretty quickly. And when that happened, I actually thought, now that's an interesting grace note for a scene that was otherwise leading to this kind of bludgeoning that we get in these sort of finales. I I did like the scale of it, too, that it, you know, it wasn't, even though it's World War One, like 
the fate of the entire universe wasn't hanging in the balance. So that that was a relief for me mm-hmm. as well. But let's talk a little bit, not that you and I are, you know, all that equipped, but I think we we should get into a little bit more about, you know, how we think the movie handles its own feminism. Because I thought it was it was smartly done. It was well done without making too big of a deal of it. It it chose the right moments. And sure, it hits some beats harder than others. Um, but the dialogue nods to her being a woman were less effective for me than just the way Jenkins frames these women, particularly mm-hmm. the women on the island and particularly in that opening battle sequence where, oh, my gosh, Robin Wright. What? She's remarkable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we need a new action series starring her. Because but she's also very good in all the dialogue scenes where she she's not pull, flexing And those muscles. scenes could be bad, too. Those those could have been really cheesy. And I think yeah. they work almost, you know, I think the Thor scenes work this way, too. So maybe I'm a sucker for these. But, yeah, I mean, on that, in that beach battle, Robin Wright, the way they're flipping through the air, and, you know, they're using stunt doubles. and But Jenkins' use of slow-mo, which can be overdone, here is to pause, and it also recalls comic book panels, mm-hmm. you know, when things slow down like that, and to, to frame them as figures of power. That That's the word that came to mind first and foremost, is that these are, without a doubt, women of power doing remarkable things when Robin Wright lets loose the three arrows at once while basically spinning upside down. That's really great. And I think that the camera looks at Gadot the same way mm-hmm. throughout the film, which is distinctive and its own way of being feminist. Maybe the defining image for me is when Pine crashes his plane and he's underwater mm-hmm. and she jumps onto the wreckage and he it's from his point of view underwater and he looks up and all he can see is this this shimmering figure that's just projecting this sense of dominance and power. And I think that's that's the image of Wonder Woman we get throughout the movie. And it feels to me like the right image. Yeah, though, that's a complex moment, I think, too, because it's a shot that suggests power. It's a shot you could argue that also suggests a virile soldier is looking up at a woman and seeing this angel that's come to save him. Well, she is a savior. And that's she the is. whole point. And I know. That's why I think it's but, a complex moment. I mean, the whole moment. sequence yeah. is to, like, flip that on its head. Right. I mean, even their positions on the beach when she drags him there and how she's cradling him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's an entire reversal sequence. And And I guess what I like is that she does look angelic, but I think that has more to do with the shimmering than a female form. Because that's what the water does. It kind of takes away this whole idea of objectification because all he sees is, again, the, this powerful mm-hmm. superior figure. She's, she's superior, like you said, to everyone in this Well, movie. that's where I was going to go. I agree with you overall on your take on the movie's feminism in terms of it being just an undeniable element of the film without it having to overstate it. And I do appreciate that. I think it lies with Gadot and her performance. Now, I laughed a little bit because when you said some of those dialogue scenes on the island could be a little hammy or bad, and I think there is one, and unfortunately, it's Gadot who I really had the issue with. There was something about when she was pleading to her mother to, I think, have mercy on Steve and let him go that just felt like she was overdoing it in relation to everyone else in that scene. Mm. And again, Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen here are so good and in such full possession of their characters that she at that point seemed just a little bit off. But you can't imagine anyone else after you watch this movie being Wonder Woman. She 
needs to be not just the best of all these Amazons, but she does have to be godlike. And of course, when they do put her in London, those poor World War One era Londoners next to her, that really helps set her apart. Not that she needs it. There is a grace and a regal quality to Gadot that is essential. And mind you, it's a grace and a regalness that comes through, I think, no matter what type of out that she's wearing. So it's not just the Wonder Woman costume, but she has a physicality that makes you believe it when she steps out of a trench on a muddy, blood-soaked battlefield ready to take on all comers. And I think without that, this movie would simply be sunk. How much of this movie is the audience basically gawking at her? And some people are, too. They're gawking at her beauty occasionally. They're gawking at her abilities as a fighter, but also, I think, just her stature, the way she yeah, holds a, a frame, word. the way Jenkins frames her. And if you think back on your favorite comic book characters and those frames, they are literally held there within that frame. We can just look at them as a kid. What I think first attracts you to these characters is just seeing Superman, the sense of the cape flowing mm -hmm. in that frame of the comic book. We can just look at that. We don't have to see him fly or do anything. We can imagine the rest. I think you get that same sense, of course, watching Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Yeah, and that World War One trenches battlefield scene has some fantastic comic book frame worthy shots that could almost be still photos and work in that way. I think also in that village saving sequence, mm -hmm. I was referencing and she bursts into that room and takes, you know, six guys out. I think there's some of it there, too. And that's like, you know, it, it's candy if, if you like superhero movies like this that want to transfer that sense of power from the comic book page onto the screen. I think there is a lot of that here. Wonder Woman is currently out in wide release. It has made a lot of money to date, which means many of you have probably already seen it. And if you agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, I don't know if we got to her weapons, her shields and her swords. but And the lasso. Yeah, we did mention the lasso at the start. <laughs> well, one of the better weapons she has in the movie. <laughs> no, probably not. We are going to talk more weapons when we come back to play Massacre Theater. Plus, we'll have Adam's interview with Trey Schultz, director of Cretia, and it comes at night. Stay with us. A 
couple of notes here before we get to my interview with It Comes at Night director Trey Edward Schultz, and we share our top five movie religious experiences. Our current poll question, which you can find over at filmspotting.net, it acknowledges that there are three remaining superhero movies on the 2017 movie calendar. Not that we're counting. That was the really entertaining trailer for one of them. You just heard Thor Ragnarok? Ragnarok. Okay, now we've switched sides. <laughs> now we've switched like pronunciation. <laughs> it is due in November. I did just see it before my screening of Wonder Woman, and that had my vote even before I saw the trailer. Now I feel even better about it, and maybe we should have considered that our listeners would have seen this trailer by now, and that would affect the voting because you've got that great immigrant song by Led Zeppelin. You've got a really badass Kate Blanchett and Michael Phillips slash Jeff Goldblum <laughs> in some funky blue makeup. You don't hear that in any of the audio, but of course. Now, that was Kate Blanchett? Yeah. Because I, I walked through the room when this was on TV and just caught her on the screen that second. I thought, wait a minute. Kate Blanchett is in this too. Yeah. I, I'm more excited as well. Well, I mean, you have to be for just about anything she does. And I think that she will be fantastic in this film. So we're anticipating Thor, whatever it's called. And our listeners are too, apparently, Josh, as we pitted this movie against Justice League and Spider-Man Homecoming. Right now, Thor is, sorry, hammering the competition. But you can still vote now. Filmspotting.net. We will share the results on next week's show. We also have... A giveaway that is going on in addition to some movie passes, filmspotting.net slash events. You can also get a copy of Movies Are Prayers out June 13th. It is Josh Larson's new book. We have five copies to give away. We're simply doing a random drawing. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. Movies Are Prayers in the subject line. Your deadline, June 19th. Those have been rolling in, they which have. is a relief to see. You hate to put something like that out <laughs> well, there. They're like not going to buy it. One but person if emails they get it, it for hey, free. At, th at this point, I'm happy with this level of interest. Okay, we'll, there has been a lot of it. We'll go up from here. Okay, one final mention of the Josh Larson book tour going across the Atlantic <laughs> yes. to London. That's I've, what this is, right? I've exhausted possibility stateside, uh -huh. so I'm taking it. Across the Atlantic. Yeah, right. I'm going to be in England with the family for a summer vacation. So why not meet up with some film spotting listeners? We've mentioned this before. We'll give it one more shout out here because it's coming up Monday, June 12, around 8 p.m. Nigel Smith of the Tufnell Park Film Club. Longtime listeners recognize that name. He's helping to organize this. So he's getting us a table at the BFA South Bank location. Hope to see a bunch of you there. So far, it looks like it could be a pretty big crowd. B bigger at this point than any of the ones I've done in the States. So that means... I don't know what that means. A lot of pints on the film spotting credit card is what it means. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I'm down with that. And if you want to attend that meetup, the information is available in the film spotting forum. We will put a link to those details in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net. It is time now. For Massacre Theater. The part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene. Madison? Alan? <laughs> yeah, of course, it's Alan. What are you doing, sweetheart? Taking a bath. Ooh. Can I come in? No! What was that? Ma Madison, are you all right? Everything's fine. Well, then let me in. I'm, I'll be right there. I'm just changing. Enough is enough, Madison. Come on, open the door. Something is wrong. Alec, can you make me some pancakes? Make you some... Madison. All right, Madison, this is getting scary. You either open up this door or I'm going to break it down. No, Alan, please. All right, that's it. Alan, no. 
Daryl Hannah and Tom Hanks there in, well, let's let listener Henrik Hansen from Yaldine in Kent in the UK tell us the title of the movie with his musical Massacre Theater entry. Splash! Was the film you were doing there? Splash! I could tell from the sound effects. Splash. Not so much the performances. Thank you, Henrik. 1984 Splash to the tune of Queen's Flash. That's what that was? Now, here's where I'm going to embarrass you guys, and it may not embarrass you, but for a certain segment of our audience, they may hold it against you and Sam that you both had to ask me what song he was parodying because you've never seen, apparently, Flash Gordon. This is true. I don't know how bad I feel about that. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't feel too bad. I think I'm already over it. Yeah, I loved the movie when I was a kid, and I don't know what got into Henrik other than the fact that Flash, of course, does rhyme with Splash because Flash Gordon was released in 1980. There's no other connection to this movie. Hey, that I can think of. Let's not get picky. Any musical voicemails we get, we love. So I know. Keep them and coming. He really did a wonderful job. Thank you, Henrik. Splash was written by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mondell and Bruce J. Friedman. Directed, of course, by Ron Howard, one of his early films. We did that massacre as part of our Best of 1984 show, where we did have that sacred cow clash over the Terminator. <laughs> We heard from Andre Cadu in Charlottesville, Virginia, with some tie-ins. The most obvious one is that Splash was released in 1984. Splash starred Tom Hanks, who starred in another 1984 film that was mentioned, Bachelor Party. Massacre Theater had two surprises for me. First, Josh, not Adam, had the female role. That's true. Wanted Second, to mix it up. Adam was very good. Yeah, that's Maybe rare. you should all do more Tom Hanks movies like Money Pit or Saving Private Ryan or Sully. Oh, if you do Sully, then you could transition to films that Josh hates, like To Kill a Mockingbird or Footloose or Terminator or Puppies. Yep. <laughs> Great show as always. You've inspired me to catch up on some 1984 blind spots and ones I haven't seen in 30 plus years. Here's what I love about Thank that. Thank you, Andre. I think I gave both The Terminator and Sully. I'll have to check on Sully if this is true, but three out of four stars. And somehow people feel that I hate them. No, there's no way you, you gave bring, Sully three. Was it lower than that? Yeah, it was lower than that. Okay, possibly. It had to be. But well, maybe not. Sully isn't as good as The Terminator. I'll tell you okay, that much. Well, lots Does of that people make you happy? will agree with you on that. <laughs> I think I probably rated Sully slightly higher than The Terminator, actually, if I remember my letterbox star ratings. Francis in Bethesda, Maryland writes, Splash is not a great movie, but it is good. And while Tom Hanks is still very much in the comic phase of his career, we are beginning to see the skills that he later developed to become a serious actor. He's funny here, but he's the straight man, as opposed to his perhaps funniest movie, Bachelor Party, which was released just three months after Splash in 1984 as well. While the obvious tie-in is that it is one of the funniest films of 84, there are some other tie-ins to the show as well. This is where I love our listeners coming through with things we never would have dreamed of. Daryl Hannah is the mermaid, who of course is so memorable in Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott, who came up a few times. That's true. Very good. Talking about Alien Covenant. Eugene Levy plays the bad guy in Splash, and he's been one of the great actors in the mockumentary category, which essentially kicked off with This is Spinal Tap, the subject of the poll, and on our list of the top five mockumentaries. That is pretty tenuous, but hey, 
the work that it went that went into it, you got to admire. Yeah, you do. And we're going to get to one more here in a moment. But before we do that, we do have the winner to announce. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out the winner. The winner is Alan Bishop from Mountain View, Arkansas. Congratulations, Alan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt and i just had to share these josh because he had a couple more tie-ins the obvious connection of splash to terminator is a non-human character pursuing slash stalking a star of a cheesy tv show tom hanks from bosom buddies and linda hamilton from beauty and the beast okay a little deeper connection is rick rosovich playing a clueless doofus in terminator ginger's boyfriend and later daryl hannah's clueless boyfriend in roxanne uh-huh. This was some of your finest work, especially with the trash can, although the scene where Madison reveals her real name in the electronic section would have been a better selection. Would it have? Let's find out. What's your name? It's hard to say in English. Well, just say it in your language. All right. My name is... So what kind of accent work could you have done there, Josh? (laughs) Now that we've pained everyone's ears, that's pretty brutal. It is. I I would have to revert to my penguin from March of the Penguins. Oh, no, we don't need that. I did a penguin. The world does not need to hear that. I don't know if I could do Mermaid. You know what you did really well? I agree with, who was it? Andre, who said you were great as Tom Hanks. You know what you really nailed? What did I nail? The the ooh, ooh. from. Do that again. Just remember (laughs) remember when she says, I'm taking a bath? Here, I'll give you the line. I'm I'm, taking a bath. I'm not a monkey here to perform for you. I was in the moment. I was there outside the bathroom, knocking on the door. Sam will, Sam will find it and play it. It was it was pristine. Ooh. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. There will be no ooh-ooing in this week's Massacre Theater, though. Just from the audience. We may have to get the trash can back out. There are some special effects. Can you duplicate that performance? Um, I don't think the trash can will work. I'm going to use... There's some metal there. um, Yeah. I'm going to try to do it vocally. (laughs) Okay, then. I think that's our best option. Yeah. I think it's definitely our best option. We are going to tell you, even though we don't need to, and, well, you already hinted at it earlier in the show, this ties in with our review of Wonder Woman. There you go. I'm sure there are others. You will tell us those other tie-ins, but for now, we're going with the Wonder Woman connection. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. And action. You're up with the sun. Beautiful morning. Magical. I found this here by the statue. That is the likeness of the goddess of love. It's very remarkable. A sword, eh? Yes, but this is no ordinary sword. Well, it's a strange metal. It's neither brass nor iron. It's it's like no metal that I've ever seen. <laughs> By the gods. There's a shield. And over there's a helmet. I was right to say by the gods. Who else can make a sword that slices through solid marble without leaving the slightest blemish on the blade? If the sword can do that, then what about the helmet and the shield? And scene. scene. <laughs> Can you give us that uh, sound effect one more time? It says here, clang. <laughs> and yet you that's gave what, us a that's swing. What, that's what clang sounds like. 
Okay. You don't say clang. No, you do. It's one of those things that has a right. name for it when the sound clang. is the word or whatever. Does that sound better? We'll see which no, one no. Sam uses. Swing is way better. See? I knew what I was doing. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 19th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Onomatopoeia. Swing! I just want to talk, and I want honest answers. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? A clip there from the trailer for It Comes at Night, the new horror film opening wide this weekend. It stars Joel Edgerton, Carmen Ajogo, Christopher Abbott, and Riley Keough, and it's directed by Trey Edward Schultz, who got on all of our radars last year with his remarkable debut, Cresha. It was a Golden Brick finalist, and it featured one of the standout performances of 2016, the title performance by Cresha Fairchild. Trey happens to be a longtime listener of Film Spotting, so when he was in town recently doing press for his new film, I couldn't pass up the chance to talk with him, despite the fact that there were multiple early screenings of this movie that I was invited to that I could not attend. The first time, I think, in film spotting show history that I've interviewed a director or an actor or actress without having seen their movie first. It's obviously not ideal, but in this case, I think because of Trey's connection to the show and my interest in his work, we had a great conversation. And no, we will not spoil anything about It Comes at Night if you are worried about that. This is not ideal. Not only have I not seen your new movie. No worries. But I haven't even watched the full trailer because good. I just don't want to know. Good. I don't want to know more than I already know, which at this point is really just that it's got a very good cast, including yes. Joel Edgerton. Yes. He's a father trying to protect his family from some kind of mysterious threat. For me, after Cresha, I'd go see whatever you were making next, regardless of who was in it or what it's about. But how do you describe the movie to Ooh. people who ask? Uh, well, uh, one thing, I'm bad with synopsises. I just don't like them. <laughs> no, I don't like reading it's not them. Fun. I don't like, like, I like knowing what like the movie's really getting after. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, the first thing I start off with people is that it's not a conventional horror film. It's a movie that comes from a really personal place. Um, For me, it comes with uh, losing my dad to cancer, and it comes with confronting my own fears, fears of the unknown, ultimate unknown being death, Mm -hmm. mortality, heavy stuff, fear, regret, fear pulling people apart, destroying them, all of that. So, yeah, I would say that's what the movie's really about. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can read the boring synopsis, sure. but, like, I, I'm also happy you haven't watched a full trailer and stuff. Try to see it uh, knowing less. We'll get into this a little bit more probably, but were horror movies your thing growing up? Were you always into them? Did they scare you? Did they not really scare you? Um, I would not call myself a horror guy per se. Okay. I'll say I love horror movies, um, but I don't like. I'm not a horror aficionado or anything. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like like you like films. I just love good movies. Yeah. Um, sometimes those happen to be horror films. Um, with me, like touchstones for like The Shining and Night of the Living Dead and The Thing and The Fly and Don't Look Now and Rosemary's all good. Day, you know, yeah. the, the classics, the yeah. great stuff. But also a lot of time, you know, either masters of that genre or auteurs making a movie that happens to be horror or something Mm -hmm. like that. I think that's the stuff I'm drawn to. And then with this, 
you know, it was like processing all this heavy stuff and it naturally it spewed out of me and went into the horror realm Mm -hmm. um not quite sure why probably just because the intensity of the subject matter and like my own fears and everything felt right to naturally translate that into horror but i always loved the idea of like elements of those movies i loved uh combined with like a family drama or something Mm -hmm. you know and i think stuff i love about those movies like taking the thing for example the monster, the makeup, it's amazing. I know that's a huge thing about the mm-hmm. movie, but I care even less about that. Like what I love about the thing is what the monster does to the people and the fear and the paranoia it spreads. Same with Night of the Living Dead and yeah. the zombies. I care more what's happening inside that house and the power dynamics. And I'd say this movie's kind of after the same thing. So you've mentioned things that you're afraid of a couple yes. times. Will those things become very obvious to the viewer watching or are they more metaphorical things you're exploring? It depends. Okay. I mean, I think if people are listening to this and then see the movie, it will be very obvious. Okay. I, you know, but then, uh, you know, I don't know what, what frame of mind you come at the movie. You know, it, it's all subjective. I, to me, the way I see it, I think it's very obvious. I think it's a, uh, a pretty sad film and uh, one that clearly comes from someone that was going through grief. Um, but, you know, I hope – People can be, like, entertained and just, like, go on it regardless of that stuff. And everyone – things are intentionally left Mm open-ended in every aspect from, like, narrative answers to, you know, even what we're saying thematically per se and some character stuff. And, like, because, you know, I like movies that – leave room to be discovered and latch on to you and stick with you. So I made this with the mind frame for like, you know, people that really love it. I hope it's a movie that, that follows them home and they mm-hmm. keep thinking about it and they can revisit over years and they see new things in it. That, that would be incredible. Just as long as there's nothing literally following them home. Yes. Yes. Totally. That might freak them out a little bit. Totally. Nothing says summer movies like sad and grief. Right? You're, <laughs> well, <that's... laughs> you're really selling it. But <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, which is strange. Uh, but hey, I don't know. Got to make the movie you got to make. Exactly. But it's funny. I bring that up because I don't know if you heard it, but a month or so ago, we did our summer movie preview and we do yes. it in the form of questions about the summer movie season. And my number one question was, will the supernatural mysterious forces threatening a family in It Comes at Night be as scary and fascinating as the natural mysterious forces that attack the family in Cretia? I'm not going to make you answer, but I will ask you, did you have any more fun shooting one type of horror movie versus mm. the other? Because Cretia certainly has some of those horror movie elements totally. on display, even though it's ostensibly about a family reunion at Thanksgiving. It doesn't have any real monsters in it, let's totally. say. Honestly, it's interesting. You would think, since this is more of a straight-up horror movie and more in the genre, I would like go a little more wild with it or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I think this is a more patient film than Cretia. And the styles, uh, in general, I think more subtle. Um, in Cretia, the style kind of fluctuates and what we're getting at to her mind state and mm-hmm. I could go into all of that. But I don't know. You know, they were flexing two different kind of muscles and two different challenges. Uh, and both were fun in different ways. How deliberate was that or how, how conscious of that were you in terms of wanting to flex different muscles? Or was it just something that came out of the material and you had to? I think it was both. Okay. You know, I think naturally, like the next thing I do, I do not want to be, I don't see it as a horror movie at all. But it's like, you always want to do that. But then also, I think the way you tell your story and what you, the film grammar you bring to it needs to be appropriate to that story. Mm -hmm. And I think how we plan to shoot it, all of that was inherently 
attached to this story, if yeah. you will, if that yeah. makes sense. I had Jeremy Sonier on the oh, show about a year ago, and we were talking about Green Room, of course, and following up Blue Ruin. These are two movies that quite graphically confront violence, and they're about characters on the fringes, and class is an element of those movies. And I wondered how aware he was of what a Jeremy Sonier movie would be <laughs> as he's moving forward with his career, or was it literally all yet to be written? And he pretty much said, yes, it's pretty much yet to be written. But what about you? You've talked about the horror element in both of these films, family, a huge part yeah. of these movies. And then I'm reminded as you started answering the first question about the personal angle, yeah. which certainly comes through in Creature. You even appear in that yeah. film. So do you have a sense of what a Trey Edward Schultz movie is, or do you mm. hope it's something that's just constantly evolving and people may not be able to, to kind of pin you down? Uh, well, yes, I do hope it constantly involves, and it's not easy to pin down at the same time. Uh, you know, I think the movies I love and the filmmakers I love, even if they're doing totally different stuff, they still feel like the same filmmakers behind that. Mm -hmm. I think... I am conscious of that, and I, I, I think Night is different from Carisha, but I hope they still feel like they're made from the same person. Um, and then, you know, the next thing I've already started writing and trying to do is new and different while retaining elements of Night and Carisha and, like, some stuff thematically that mm -hmm. I'm just obsessed with. So who knows? You know, like Jeremy, I'd say one step at a time. We'll see how it goes. But at the same time, I do um, – I hope, uh, you know, the films made feel like they're made from the same person. Mm -hmm. So where are you at in the process with that next uh, film you're working on? I started writing uh, the f first stuff of that in pre-production before night, and then I just stopped. Mm -hmm. and so I got to return to it, and I just started picking it up again. Um, my goal is to have a draft, a, good, a solid draft done by end of summer and okay. then be, be able to shoot sometime soon, not yeah. too far away. You know, Cretia, I just noticed this is actually listed on IMDb somehow as a comedy comma drama. <laughs> hey, there's some comedy in it. So I'm wondering, maybe, do we have a slapstick comedy in you, Trey? Oh, certainly not next. Not next, uh, okay. I, hopefully someday. Yeah. You know, honestly, though, like, the comedy I gravitate towards is probably, like, Punch Drunk Love is one mm -hmm. of my favorite movies, and I think that movie's hilarious and right. lovely and everything else. And, <laughs> but I don't know. I would love to make a comedy. Hopefully the next movie has more humor than Night, okay. that's for sure. Okay. Well, I look forward to that. I do want to go back a little bit, though. Krisha played festivals in 2015, but most of us just saw it finally in 2016. Here we are barely more than a year later. You've got It Comes at Night coming out. When did you start working on it, and was this a script that you've had ready to go for a while, or did it come together pretty quickly? Um, I, I had it ready to go for a while. So basically... That's why, to me, too, even though they're different films, they're very interlinked, Krisha, and It Comes at Night. Um, just they go about it in a subtly different way. Very long story, trying to figure out the best way to pin it down. But, like, Krisha started, I tried to make it summer of 2012, and I failed, and it took two years, and I turned that material into a short film. And then in that time frame, stuff happened with my dad, and I was going through grief, and I started writing, and this came out. So that was, like... Early 2014. And then the Cretia short did South by Southwest. I was assuming investors would just be standing there offering me money. Mm -hmm. And no one cared. <laughs> not at all. A lot of people just thought it was a weird movie. Some really dug it. Um, and then whatever. I was left there with nothing. And I started thinking about Cretia again and what that initial feature was supposed to be mm -hmm. and what the short had become and how it 
was not that and th- started thinking about everything that it could be again. And I got the bug again. And I rewrote the Cretia feature after I had the first draft of It Comes at Night. Um, so I made that in August of 2014, Cretia. Mm-hmm. And then after I had any kind of success, like we premiered at South by Southwest, had an amazing festival. Uh, I got agents from that. They sent Cretia to uh, A24. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a phone call with them. And they loved the movie and were just like, what's next? And I was like, I, th- I got to make my baby. This is like the black beast okay. in me. I got to yeah, get yeah. out before I can do anything. And I showed them this script. And they're like, we love it. We want to do it. And it was just simple. They were like, OK, we're going to release Cretia. We'll fund and release this. Let's do it. Yeah. And now we're doing it. There's so many things I want to get into. But you've mentioned your dad and you've mentioned grief a couple of times. I have to ask, is that something where you felt more of a compulsion to deal with that, or did you actually hope it would be cathartic, and was it, mm. or was it not? Can can dealing with grief through your art provide some kind of relief? I I mean I think so. Mm-hmm. I hope so. It did for me. I think honestly the most cathartic thing with me was that first like spew when it came out of me in those three days. Um, it was that bug i don't know i'm sure a lot of people have had it where you just get that rush and that flow and Mm -hmm. like you you don't sleep a lot you get up you take off work and you just keep writing and that's what happened with this and i was crying like a baby and going through a range of emotions and when i got it out of me it was it did feel really cathartic um but then that was just the first half i saw Mm -hmm. the movie and everything uh but inherently with that you know it's it's making a movie it's a long journey and we shot this in august and i've been working nonstop since then and just finished the movie three weeks ago so uh right now i'm just tired yeah ready to like it's still trippy that people are going to see it and get it out there. But, yeah, I hope it's cathartic. It was cathartic for me. Okay. I'm sure there were a lot of moments that kind of made you step back a little bit and, and realize what you were embarking on making a film yeah. like It Comes at Night after making something like Cretia so small yeah. with a, a smaller group, not known actors, obviously a smaller budget. But was there one moment that sort of stood out, whether it was in the casting process or when you're actually on set where you kind of said, OK, this is this is a different beast and, and I'm, I'm on a different level here. Yeah, and honestly, it wasn't as big of a jump as you think because Night is still a pretty contained movie mm-hmm. and it's primarily in one house. And um, I'm trying to th- pin down one moment, but <laughs> there was a lot of just like practicalities of like, okay, boards are on all the windows and we need to have a different day look for our interiors than our night look. Uh-huh. And just the time it takes to set that stuff up. It, there would be surreal moments where, you know, it's like I have all these actors sitting down at a at a dinner table to do this scene I wrote and like people I'm big fans of uh, sitting there and I'm giving input on how to do it where it does hit you yeah. where you're like wow this is weird How the, and then the, all this crew's over here uh-huh. and we're all doing this for this little and they're thing. all listening to me and they're all listening <laughs> to me I don't know why but they are uh-huh. but yeah and then the majority of the time you're just making a movie though you right. go into the trenches and you just do your thing and you're trying to get it done and like making this wasn't that different from making okay. a show okay so maybe a bad question to follow up with then but was there any part of making Cretia that best prepared you for making It Comes at Night and then what did you learn from making this movie that you kind of wish you could go back in time and tell the younger Trey Ooh. not that you were that much younger at this point and, and just, just to be aware of and, and look out for definitely I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is just uh it's how I shoot movies too. I don't shoot standard coverage, um, and I'm very deliberate. I get that how sense. I do that. Yeah. 
<laughs> but the, I definitely put myself in some corners and some traps with this one. Uh, my my DP and I are like, this is how we shot it. This is how it's going to be. But the, sometimes you need a little flexibility in that. Um, so yeah, that would be the one thing. Like mm-hmm. to to still be very deliberate and very intentional how you shoot it, obviously. But every now and then, just think, well, maybe we do this or this, um, and then pass that for preparing me for night. Oof. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, aunt, I, I can't think of one thing. Mm-hmm. It, it was everything. And it's like a constant evolution. And there's no way I could have made night without making Cresha before it. Yeah. And I felt like I had to make night after Cresha and now ready for some new challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you brought up your style and the deliberate sort of visual approach because I was curious how much you visualize the look of a movie, whether it's the color, the framing, the movement when you're working on the script. And I'm thinking about a sequence like the opening tracking shot of Cresha, of course, or the one that we talked about a bunch at our 2016 rap party Michael had as his number one music moment of the year, the, the Nina Simone moment where the bottle comes uncorked and yes. Frisha goes to the kitchen and the turkey and all that fun stuff. At what point does a sequence like that start to get plotted out? Uh, f- so far, at least, it does start with, with the initial script and the writing. And okay. Krisha was even further to the fact of like, I literally wrote like I would take a break in the writing and the script to say this is going to be a take and this is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. I would write in when the aspect ratios were going to change, when the music hits. Really? All of that at the same time being open and flexible because like, if you're so didactic in that and you're not open because like a film is like a living, breathing thing and it's all about collaboration. So it's like mm-hmm. having that strong vision. But then Drew, my DP or someone else, but they'll have some new idea and you got to be open to that. And if you are, usually a combines to make something even better. Mm-hmm. And that happened big time with Cresha. And then with Knight, it was the same way, but uh, there was a consciousness of like trying to put the storytelling first and challenge myself even in the writing to where don't include that stuff in the script. Okay. Just let it read as a story. And then kind of with the film grammar, um, like we change aspect ratios and stuff in this again, but once again, I hope people don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's subtlety with this one. Mm-hmm. It just fit the story better in our minds. Yeah, but to get even more specific, I guess when you were working on Cretia and those elements are being written into the script, yeah. is that because you're seeing it in your head as you are writing it, or is it after you've written it, you're then thinking about it more in that way? So far, it's been like seeing it in my head, you know, and a lot of times too, before that draft clicks and it all comes mm-hmm. out it's it's images and emotions and music and and visualizing that stuff and then figuring out the framework and putting it all together and certainly on the first drafts for stuff mm-hmm. so far for night and Cretia, it's like I write from um, the point of view of the characters and experiencing everything with the characters and in line with them. But while I'm doing that, I experience the movie how I feel is right to film them and experience their journey, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we could talk all day, but I know you have to catch a plane. (laughs) So I'm going to I'm going to jump to the the end here a little bit. A couple of things I wanted to fit in. One, if you look at your IMDb page. You have some credits working with Terrence Malick on Song to Song, on Voyage of Time, also with Jeff Nichols, uncredited, but credited on IMDb, on Midnight Special. Can you just talk about your relationship with those filmmakers? How did that come about? Sure. Uh, Very blessed. Uh, Another very long story, which I will try to condense. But it started because I went to, I was, uh, it was after freshman year of college. I was 18 and I went uh, to Hawaii for the summer to live with Krisha, my aunt, Hmm. uh, who um, did voice acting there and had connections. And I, I just wanted to do filmmaking and my parents 
believed in me, but they were like, you need to be practical. You need to get a business degree, do that. So that's what Mm -hmm. I was in school for. So this summer trip, I was there to intern on commercials and everything. And whole long story short, I lucked out and got on a Terrence Malick movie. At the time, it was for Voyage of Time, Mm -hmm. which I still haven't seen. But it was like Terry wasn't there. It was like five guys with an IMAX camera filming the volcano. Um, and I was a kid who knew nothing. Like I didn't get a guy was changing film in a bag. Yeah. And I was like, what, is, what are your hands doing? What are you <laughs> like? I just didn't get anything. Uh-huh. And then I shared a room with the film loader. Um, he was a great guy. And the first AC had to leave early. The film loader stepped up to first AC. Um, and he taught me how to load film. And I remember, you know, practicing in my hotel room. And, um, when you do it in the field, you don't have a dark room or anything. You just have a bag. Mm -hmm. It was IMAX camera. So these magazines are huge. And I remember the first time I was doing it, uh, lava was very slowly (laughs) flowing towards us. Uh, the DP was screaming that he needed another mag. It started raining and people were holding a tarp over me and I was doing all this and uh, my heart was beating like crazy, but my hands were steady enough, and I did okay. Yeah. And the DP liked me, and he got me on these other shoots. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to go back to school for now. And I went to, like, Iceland and Chile and Monterey. Uh, and I met Terry for the first time in Redwoods. And then after that experience, I went to Austin and interned uh, for his uh, post-production facility for a while. Mm-hmm. I interned at the research department and editing. Um, I wasn't getting paid, though, and I was flat broke, and I had to go back home and live with my dad. Um, Mm -hmm. But at that point, I decided to drop out of school, and a lot of fights with my parents ensued. But basically, worked for my dad, would work on when something would come up. Like, I knew the people, and they got me on Song to Song. Uh, Luckily, I got to work with Jeff on Test Shoots and Midnight Special in Austin. So I was basically a weirdo living in my parents' house, the Cretia house. Uh, obsessing over movies, listening to film spotting. Uh, if yeah, it's really weird being here now. And then um, it's great to have you. Yeah, man. And it was like one thing led to another. And Jeff is another one where like he's the kind of guy. I you know I was just a camera PA and I uh-huh. had to give him a ride home. And he was like, "What's up with you? What are you about?" And I was like, "I don't know. I made this short film. It was the short film for Cretia." And he made me send him the movie and gave me feedback. He helped, like, send it to festivals with uh-huh. me. Just stayed in touch. And he's the kind of guy to where, like, like I always wanted Joel for night, but his schedule was booked. He's a busy guy, mm-hmm. crazy talented. Uh, and his schedule opened up, and I sent him the script. And I told Jeff, and Jeff texted him. He was like, take this kid seriously. And Joel read the script the night he got it. He was giving feedback the next day. We met the following Monday. Yeah. And he was in on the movie, and everything led from there. Uh, so I, Jeff, too— Terry's amazing, but Jeff is almost like – I feel like a big brother cinematically every now and then uh-huh. if I need help or something. It's like, hey, it's Jeff. amazing. And he's like, yeah, he's good people, man. Huh. But what an education and how great to have mentors like that. Totally. It, it's amazing. I, You know, and yeah. yeah. It, it's like one step at a time. This is something we're going to try new here real quick. Rapid Fire, the film Spotting Five. This was not invented by Bernard Pivot. We're not going to get inside the actor's studio here. But just real quick, the last movie you saw in the theater. I think it was Get Out. Okay. Did you like it? I, I did very yeah. much. I I think it's an insanely smart movie. Yeah. Um, and it's so dope to see how successful it's been. For sure. And that our culture is ready for that. Yeah. You know? A movie you revisited recently. Oh, a uh, movie I revisited recently. Oh, honestly, I think Michael Mann's Heat. Yeah. I hadn't seen that in a long time. <laughs> was it because it was just on TV the other day? Because that's how I saw really? it. Really? Yeah. I actually don't I got cable. stuck watching it. Okay. That's so funny. Did yeah. You see it, it was just like day? a week ago. I was just scrolling like Amazon and I okay. was like, oh, Heat. 
I, I don't know if it was Prime, but I was like, I want to see this again. Yeah. Three hours, screw it. I want to see it. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. Oh, it's so good. But it was so funny because I remember seeing that as a young kid and digging it, but at the same time being like, oh, this is not. This is kind of boring. There's not that much action and not enough <laughs> no. bank robberies. And seeing it again now, it's just like I, I love that in that sprawling thing, like you care about every character mm-hmm. and every character has a depth. And Yeah, yeah for sure. It's great. An underrated movie. Could be new or old. Ooh, uh, I have a controversial one. Okay, that I, movie I always defend: uh, Gaspar Noé's *Irreversible*, mm. um, which I still haven't had the strength to watch. It's tough. It's tough. It's uh, it, you know, it's like to hell and then to light. It's like, uh, but at the end, it puts everything in a traffic. Huh. I, I will say this: it starts in a terrible place. You experience terrible stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to make a movie where rape is the central plot point, I think it's. It's more honest in its depiction by, like, uh, showing how terrible it is. But past that, later in the movie, there's a long scene with uh, uh, the actors, uh, Vincent Cassell and Monica Mm -hmm. Belushi, who are, like, a real couple at the time. And it's just them in their apartment. And you can tell they're truly in love. And it's just real and moving and subtle. And it makes the whole movie heartbreaking for me. And I just start crying every time I hmm. see that. And it puts everything into context. And I think everyone gets caught up. Obvious, there's yeah. very rough stuff in the movie, but there's some beautiful stuff later on. And I think you know, there's some, he, has, he has some stuff on his mind with that movie. Well, great. Now you've compelled me to want to see the movie. A, <laughs> a random, lot of people hated yeah. that. Okay. A random movie you love? Uh, I think uh, – have you seen the film Come and See? I haven't, okay. and it's come up so many times okay. in top five lists over the years. Great. Huge regret. So it's a great movie. Okay, I, I f- when did I see? It? I saw it years ago, but uh, I don't know. Just like to me, that's like a combination of like surreal horror and war films. Yeah. one and ooh, interesting tying tonight. Night is sort of, uh, it's about Travis, this boy, and his journey. And it, it's almost like a coming-of-age story in this mm-hmm. terrible world. Come and see is like a coming-of-age story for a kid in war. And uh, where his face starts and where his face ends at the end of the movie is just heartbreaking. Yeah. And I love that film. And it's certainly, you can see its influence on stuff that I do, for sure. Hmm. A favorite book about the movies or movie making? I think it would be uh, the Stanley Kubrick archives. Have, have, have you read that? It's, I haven't. It's amazing. It's like uh, just a big book, and the first half is just images from all his films okay. in each movie. Great stills. That I, I keep it on my coffee table, and every now and then if I just want inspiration, visual, whatever, I just look at those pictures. And then the whole second half is behind-the-scene details of each one of his movies. Uh, interviews with Kubrick, um, pictures of stuff left over. It's, it's really amazing. I would love to talk more. I would love to get into maybe when you come back on the show someday yeah. with your next movie, we'll talk about your Aunt Cretia and that performance. Yes. Because I really would love to do that. But Just for to give now, your heads yeah. up as well, she um, was really frustrated around the release. Uh, she has a manager. They went to LA and did all the meetings with agents. No one mm-hmm. wanted to represent her. They said there's no roles for women like her. Um, and she wasn't getting much work. She's gotten a couple of small roles and a few indie things. And I believe she just booked a role in a new TV show. Okay, um, great. So just, she's incredible. She follow is. her if you can. Yeah. I love her today. For sure. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the movie track. Thank you for having me. We'll talk to you later. Pleasure. If you're lying to me, I will kill you.
My thanks again to Trey for taking the time to sit down for that chat. And if you want to seek out some of his answers there to the Film Spotting Five, we will list those over at filmspotting.net. I'm probably going to add a separate page for these Film Spotting Fives, Josh, as we hope to rack a few more of them up with other guests. But for now, you will definitely find it on the top five list page for this episode, which is episode 638. You heard me there, of course, say that I had not seen the movie yet. That will be remedied shortly because it does open wide this weekend, and it is the film we are planning to discuss on next week's show. When Josh is off in London, I will be here with Michael Phillips, working hard, keeping the show going. Yeah. No, this one uh, this one hurts. I don't like missing yeah, shows in general, but I really want to see It Comes at Night. And we are going to not only review that, but do a top five that ties in with that movie and you heard me joke in the interview with Trey that he really did some kind of summer production here all he could talk about was sadness and grief well we're going to give you even more of that summer fun with our top five we're going to share our top five movies about grief if you have one that you're afraid we might overlook whatever your number one movie is on that topic we would love to hear it you can leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or you can send us an mp3 file feedback at filmspotting.net We'll hear a bit more from Trey when we come back to share our top five religious experiences at the movies. Trey's pick, some thoughts from listeners, and our own lists are all next. Stay with us. If I were born to be a river If a river is all I'd be I'd tell Hey, Film Spotting, this is Jared Young from the website Dear Cast and Crew calling in to share a religious experience I had at the movies. And it's a pretty fresh memory because it happened just last year with Denis Villeneuve's arrival. Now, without spoiling the ending for those who haven't seen it, I'll just say that there's a plot element involving an alien language that posits this idea that you can experience time all at once as a whole rather than in a linear way from moment to moment, from start to finish. Anyways, uh, right after the movie, I went to the grocery store and found myself staring at all these strangers walking through the aisles, and I couldn't help but picture them as babies, as little kids, as teenagers, as grandparents, like I was seeing the totality of who they were from start to finish, not just this particular moment when I happened to be with them in the granola aisle at Whole Foods. And it really gave me this weird feeling of peace and empathy and connectedness, and that, to me, is what a religious epiphany is all about a new way of seeing the world and the people within it. So even now, when someone cuts me off in traffic or something, I'll have this arrival moment and picture that person as a little kid in the park or as an elderly person in a wheelchair, and it totally prevents me from raging out and leaning on the horn. And the best part is, 
all this from a movie about giant squid people invading the earth and potato ship spaceships. So not bad. Anyway, best of luck to Josh with the book and much love to film spotting. Thanks. It's top five time here on the show. We've got a big one this week, Josh, a profound one suggested by you religious experiences at the movies and you just got a taste of it. And we've already received a lot of great feedback in the form of voicemails, emails, some tweets, some Facebook posts. We're not going to get to feature too many of them here, but I think that one from Jared, who I'll just note, I've had a chance to hang out with at least two times when I've been in Ottawa. Good guy, good group of film fans and film spotting fans there in Ottawa. I think he probably did as good a job as anybody, probably even a better job than me of articulating what this list was probably supposed to be talking about Arrival and the impact that film had on him. But this was your topic. It was your suggestion inspired by your book, which is coming out this week. Movies are prayers, June 13th. You can get it on Amazon and wherever else you buy books. So how did Jared do? And how did you do as far as defining this? Yeah, I like what Jared had to say, and mostly because clearly that's how movies speak to him. And I think that's what we wanted most of all is for this to be very personal and open up opportunities for people to say, what does it mean to me when I have this sort of transcendent is a word a lot of people use experience at the movies. So I like where he came from. I think mine, I narrowed down a little bit more from where we initially talked about this, which was that idea about movies that made you contemplate things outside of yourself or beyond temporal experience. I found a better phrasing of that sort of idea since we talked about it in another just that you didn't published share with book. Me. Well, I suppose I could have, <laughs> but really I just came across this. I'm at her struggling with temporal experience and you just leave me hanging. See if this helps you, okay? okay? It's from former Calvin College professor Roy M. Anker. His book is Beautiful Light, Religious Meaning in Film. I think it's out now. I had a preview copy of this, but he describes the movies he writes about there as those that venture a walk to the thin places where humanity senses the press of a wholly different reality. So again, a very broad definition, but I like the descriptors he has there. So my picks are films that took me to those thin places, particularly then as I understand them in the light of my Christian faith. So I'll definitely be speaking from a Christian perspective, but as we've already heard, I hope these lists are going to speak to other experiences as well. And to that end, I did want to share quickly an email I got from Mike Robbins that does speak to how these lists could be formed. Mike said, I'm a dedicated atheist, but always enjoy your perspective and good humor on the show as well as your writing at Think Christian. For years, I have said some version of, I don't need religion when I have Bergman, Kubrick, Brisson, Loach, and Cassavetes. I see films as a transcendent experience despite my lack of religion. So there's that word transcendent again. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that gives you an idea of, you know, the wide tent we're trying to, to allow for this top five. Right, because you've said before, and I think we should probably restate it, even though there's obviously a fundamentally religious bent to your book, the movies you chose were not chosen because they are religious films per se. In fact, exactly. you did just the opposite and largely yeah. selected movies that don't explicitly deal with religious topics. So that's probably more the angle I'm going to come at with my list. And I want to point out that as I started initially thinking about this and some of the movies that popped into my head, I felt like, wow, these are really familiar. Like I've put these titles on a similar list before. And then I realized that back in November 2008 here on the show, Maddie and I did our top five movies about mortality. Mm. And we revisited that in March 2011. And obviously these could be different. I don't think any of these titles would have made my eventual list that I'm going to get to here in a moment. But for me, when I think of 
religious experience in terms of outside of myself, my place in the universe, however you want to look at it. I think about that fundamental question, what happens to us when we die? Sure. Simple, the existential question. For some, like you, Josh, that answer lies in faith. For the rest of us, that lies elsewhere. And so I will mention those titles that aren't going to come up here on my list, but came up then. I called it the Roy Batty Time to Die Memorial List because I thought about that Tears of Rain speech mm-hmm. from Rucker Hauer as a candidate. I also had at number five, Solaris, the Tarkovsky film from 72. I had a Bergman cheat at four, The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. Wings of Desire was three, Grave of the Fireflies two, and I had all that jazz actually at number one. Going back to that initial definition that you threw out for us to consider outside of yourself, thinking about topics, thinking about the world outside of your own perspective, these are moments in movies where I became hyper aware of myself in relation to others. The overwhelming grandeur, I suppose, of the universe perhaps became aware of something about the human condition as well. But I do want to say that for me, and I know some people have gone this route in the feedback we've gotten, I think it's great. Again, very personal. That's what it should be. For me, it's less about sort of lessons I drew from any of these movies. It's more about a feeling I had watching them or feelings that I can't really describe. And I'm going to try my best here to describe them. And I'll point out, too, that it's not so much about the movies as a whole. It's not as if I'm saying this number five, I view as in its totality, a religious experience. It's about a specific moment in that movie, though, certainly as you get through my list, they are arguably representative of the film as a whole because these scenes are culminations of kind of what the whole film was building up to, whether I was aware of it or not. Largely, I wasn't. And that's where the religious experience aspect came into it. And that mention of time, temporal experience we joked about. Time and space did sort of break down in these moments as I watched these scenes unfold. I liken it to maybe what Neo, Keanu Reeves, must have felt when he was unplugged from the Matrix. It's that kind of moment, Mm -hmm. even though I can't fully imagine, obviously, what that would be like. That's the best movie reference I could go to in terms of that feeling of just all of a sudden you're you're having almost an out-of-body experience in the theater as you watch the movie. Yeah, epiphany. I don't know if you, you just said that, but that's a word I saw Other come up had, in yeah. a lot of comments and responses, which describes what you're talking about. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. For most of my picks, it is a specific moment that I'll be talking about. My number five, though, it does encompass pretty much the whole film, and it's Requiem for a Dream. This is Darren Aronofsky's brilliant, shattering depiction of addiction from 2000. Stars Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, Marlon Wayans, and possibly a career best, Ellen Burstyn. She She's is so good. amazing in Requiem for a Dream. Now, why would I pick such a harrowing movie as a religious experience? I think you and, was it Sam, have previously described it as one of your one-timers. Yeah, it's a right? one-timer. Yeah, so, so why put it on a list like this? Well, I believe that facing depravity head-on, both in others or in ourselves, can be a religious experience. In fact, this is where faith often starts, when you acknowledge that things are messed up, that we're messed up, and then somewhere within us, we also recognize this longing for something better. Requiem for a Dream decidedly does not get to the something better, but it surely recognizes that depravity. I remember just feeling this sickness after watching Requiem for a Dream. And this would have been in my early days as a critic for the Naperville Sun just outside of Chicago. I almost didn't know what to do with the movie when it came time to review it. You just, I just sat there thinking about what do I do with this movie and with this feeling I've got in my gut. And I would say it was distinct from the sickness I felt after, say, some torture porn films or even something like 
Gaspar Noe's Irreversible, which I know Trey Schultz experienced differently than me and how it handled that material. To me, Requiem for a Dream was something different that I would describe as a true lament. Uh, And that's where I placed it in my book, alongside other movies that function as prayers of lament, where we lift up this sorrow and this pain to God because we know we just can't bear it ourselves. So getting things off to a cheery start here, along with your mortality list. (laughs) Such wonderful (laughs) titles we've mentioned, but number five is Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, who knew all my talk of mortality and dying, this choice might be slightly more cheery than yours, Josh. The movie is... Dark City from 1998, Alex Proyas, a science fiction film, a neo-noir film, and I am going to get into some spoilers here, and I will warn people as I do that or choose not to do that with some of my picks, but I can't really talk about this scene without giving some key information away. I don't think I've shared this story on air before. Dark City's only made one top five list when we did our top five nocturnal movies, and I didn't get into that, but students who were in my remembering Roger Ebert class at the University of Chicago three summers ago, I think, will recall this moment. They'll remember it happening, if not noticing it in the dark when I then explained it to the class during the discussion. Afterward, if you're not familiar with Dark City first, it is this movie directed by Proyas. Lem Dobbs and David S. Goyer are the writers, and Rufus Sewell plays a guy who wakes up in a bathtub, doesn't know how he got there, and he's given some instructions by a doctor, Kiefer Sutherland, and he basically has amnesia, and he is not only trying to figure out where he is and who these very weird people, creatures called the strangers are, who they are and why they're after him, he is chasing this vision in his head of Shell Beach. It's the only thing he remembers. He can see this beach that he thinks he visited as a child, and There comes a point in the movie where he's talking to the doctor and also a detective character played by William Hurt. And the doctor says, you still don't understand. You were never a boy, not in this place. Your entire history is an illusion, a fabrication. They get to Shell Beach and it's truly just a sign. It's just a sign on the wall. It's not there. It didn't exist. As the doctor explains, there's no ocean. There's nothing beyond the city. The only place home exists is in your head. Murdoch, the character played by Rufus Sewell, is not accepting of that notion, and he starts tearing at the wall. He tears the poster away and then starts hammering away at the wall until a giant hole forms. So that sound you hear, that's space. They pry through the wall, and on the other side is just space. They are floating out there on a rock. And guess what, Josh? So are we (laughs) right now. We are just on a rock floating out in the middle of vastness. We can't even begin to comprehend. It's obvious. It's something we all are aware of and take for granted every day. And it's moments like this in movies that make you sharply aware of it just in an instant. And I felt it in that instant. Outer space isn't on the other side of these studio walls, but It might as well be. I'm hoping, of course, Josh, that our entire lives aren't a fabrication, some experiment that some alien beings are in charge of. But I suppose to go back to the Matrix reference earlier, what would truly be the difference? How would we know? How would it really change anything we're doing right now or we would do in the future? Dark City 
made me think about questions like that. You know what that makes me think of? A film I didn't consider for this list, but I should have because it has a similar moment of, I guess you could maybe call it anti-revelation, is The Truman Show. Yeah. I mean, that's, I remember having a profound a viewing experience this during list, The Truman right. Show, and I forgot about it for this list. Instead, for number four, I'm going to go with True Grit from 2010. Now, I knew that the Coen brothers would be on here because despite the snarkiness that often defines their films and how often that's pointed specifically toward religion, there's something weird going on in their movies where this jokiness suddenly gives way to what feels, at least for me, like authentic transcendence. I usually call this the Jesus tease. It's where the Coens tiptoe toward the New Testament before they lower that Old Testament hammer that they handle so well. One of these moments, and it's among the most powerful in all their films for me, is their use of this 1887 hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, that is in their remake of True Grit. This is a recurring musical motif a couple of times in the film, but it becomes most prominent in that sequence where Jeff Bridges' rooster carries Haley Steinfeld's Maddie on horseback. She's just been bitten by a poisonous snake, so he's racing to get help. The way the Coens shoot this, it's almost as if we're experiencing it from Maddie's hallucinatory point of view. The sun sets, and then we get this weird bluish night. Their figures on the horseback are seen in a mythic silhouette, and I like how Rooster leaves this place of death. There's the shot of all the bodies he's left behind, the men he's killed, and he moves towards, he's using every ounce of his strength to move towards this place of life, or at least to sustain life. And it ends with that scene of him falling to his knees just outside a cabin while holding her in his arms. She's like an offering there, and then you get that piano rendition of the hymn that's all about New Testament grace. I think that whole scene takes place in one of those thin places that Anchor describes in his book. And I did write about this scene in detail in Movies Are Prayers, and I just ended up watching it over and over because it put me in one of those goosebump states that hmm. you just don't want to leave. That's a great choice, and I really need to see the Coen Brothers version of True Grit again, in addition to seeing the original version starring John Wayne. My number four is a movie that I think it's probably come up on the show only in passing, where I've probably talked about this scene really, really briefly, but it's otherwise never made a top five list. It's certainly not a film that's thought of as a classic, and it's David Fincher's The Game. This came out in 1997. It was his follow-up to Seven, which I remember loving that film so much, as most people did, and it was a huge hit. So the game ended up being a bit of a disappointment, both at the box office and among critics. But it's stuck with me, and I'll tell you why here as we get to the moment that really stands out. It is the end of the film. So if you've not seen the game, well, either stop listening or forward ahead because I am going to get into those details. Michael Douglas stars in this film. He plays Nicholas Van Orton. He's an investment banker. He's very rich, but otherwise doesn't have anything else that is satisfying in his life. He has an ex-wife. He has a younger brother, Conrad played by Sean Penn. I think he's really good in the game. Of course, he's almost always really, really good. And he is haunted by these visions of his father. He saw his father commit suicide, jump off the roof and kill himself. He did it on his 48th birthday. Nicholas's 48th birthday is coming up. So there's this sense of inevitability about what may be coming his way 
if something doesn't drastically change in his life. And enter his brother Conrad, who says, I bought you a birthday present. There is this experience that a group puts on. They're called the Consumer Recreation Services, and they will basically... They will help you. He says, I did it, and it was the best experience of my life. I think you could benefit from it. Promise me you'll call. Nicholas says that he'll do it. I'm going to jump way ahead here because all the machinations of the game are too complicated to even get into if I wanted to, but he comes to believe, Nicholas, that this isn't really a game at all, that they are actually using him, that they are out to steal his money, that he is in way over his head, and he is going to be the one to get himself out of it, and he's going to bring this terrible group down. It all requires so much suspension of disbelief to even get to this point where they're on the roof of a building, a hotel or something at the end of the film. It was probably too much for many people who watched the game. It was almost too much for me until it all comes together. He's on the roof. He's being told by one of the participants in the game that actually, you know what, it all is really just a game. Your brother's on the other side of the wall. Your friends and family are here. All your money's intact. It's all a joke. Settle down. But he's got a gun. He's got a real gun. And he gets so worked up that when the door opens, he shoots his brother. He shoots Sean Penn with what he believes to be a real gun. And Sean Penn is dying before him. So what does he do? He goes over to the edge of the building and he kills himself, just like his father on his 48th birthday. And when he does that, his whole life flashes before him as he falls to the ground and he crashes through this glass ceiling of whatever ornate hall this is, this fancy dinner's going on. Basically, everyone he knows is all sitting around this big airbag and he lands in it. And it turns out it was all a game. He sees his brother. His brother says, happy birthday, and has a T-shirt that says, I was drugged and left for dead in Mexico, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. And when it finally hits him, the momentousness of what he has been through, Nicholas cries, and he embraces his brother. And Josh, it's not the twist that gets me, though that's one of the satisfying parts of the movie, that it went that far. Yeah, right. That it all plays out the way it does. It's not the links that Conrad goes to to save his brother, though that's also part of it. It's that in order to truly expunge the trauma that he experienced growing up, to not end up exactly like his father, he basically had to make the choice to do it, to end up like his father. And having done it and survived it, he's transformed. If you did something like that as a stunt, as a form of therapy, let's say, knowing you would survive, the fact that you knew you would survive, it probably wouldn't have much of an impact, but he gets to do the impossible. He gets to die and be reborn. And that type of transformation, we see those in movies all the time where the guy who's the disillusioned, lonely, rich mm-hmm. guy is turned around and becomes a better guy by the end of the film. He doesn't just become a better guy. He becomes, in a way, a wholly different person. He is a new being almost, having gone through something that we all don't get to experience. And the fact that he was put through it the way he was and put through it by his brother ultimately to save him I find very moving, I suppose, on a basic level. So I did see the game, but probably I haven't seen it since it came out. Forgot yeah. all of that. So you, really? you just re-spoiled it for okay. me. Thanks a lot. Good. Number three, I'm going to go with a recent film, Moonlight. For me, it's all about the baptism scene. This is when Juan, played by Mahershala Ali, takes young Chiron, and here he's played by little Alex Hibbert at this point, takes him to the beach to teach him how to swim. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not going to let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. 
10 seconds. See that right there? You're in the middle of the world. The way the director, Barry Jenkins, shoots this is all about that word again, transcendence. That's what he's going for here. The strings you hear on the soundtrack, the way the water laps over the camera, but then the camera always comes back up to greet that promise of the bright blue sky. And then we get Juan's words. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not going to let you go. That's the gospel promise right there. And you can read the Bible for more details, or you can watch this scene just to feel it. It's really amazing. Moonlight, one of my top 10 films of last year, putting it at number three on this list. One of my top 10 as well, and I'm not surprised to hear it on this list of religious experiences. That's such a wonderful scene. My number three is a movie that also made a top 10 year-end list. It was actually number one the year it came out, and yes... I will tell you, listeners, it is officially penalty box bound because it has made a few top five lists. Most recently, something in the 580s, Josh. And I think it was the list actually we did of non-kids movies to show our kids. Oh, and Sam. certainly, yeah, listeners know this is a movie I adore. So indulge me as I talk about it one more time here because I just felt for this list, as you said, such a personal list. It had to be here. And that movie is Man on Wire. The 2008 documentary by James Marsh, it is about Philippe Petit and his high-wire walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center in New York in 1974. It's based on Petit's book, and there's something about the end of this after he has pulled off what is shot by Marsh almost like a heist, breaking into the two towers and clandestinely with a group of people and all this equipment managing to get up to the roof and have a wire strung across the towers, he does finally actually get out there on the wire. And there is a moment where he articulates it, the older Petit, the Petit of today, talking about how he recognized that this was probably the end of his life. And yet... He somehow stood in defiance of that. And even at one point, and this is going to tie in with something I'm going to get to with my next pick, he says it's something he couldn't resist. Even knowing the risk, he felt this compulsion to get out on the wire. And when he finally does, we don't see this recreated. We only see photos, actual photos from the moment. And I love when Petit talks about feeling unsure, that he got out on the wire at first just like anybody would get out on any wire not really knowing if he could fully trust himself, and he was being very careful. And then at some point, he realized he had this under control, and he became an entertainer. And we see a shot of him actually smiling as he's up there, hundreds of feet in the air between these two towers. He's not only facing death, but he's, he's laughing in the face of it. I saw his face changing. He was very tense, and all of a sudden there was something uh, like a relief in him. And from that time, I thought, that's it. He's secure, it's good. And wow, that's... Uh, that. <laughs> so you hear in that scene, one of his partners in this mission, he breaks down. 
talking about that scene, reflecting on that scene, it's all of a sudden as if he's back there in the moment watching him do it. And all of those emotions he was feeling, it's almost like there's too many words to try to describe it. He's just overcome by it. And the very next shot is this canted angle of one of the two towers. The other one is just slightly visible in the right side of the frame. And it's just a black and white photo, the sky gray up above. The camera zooms in on the photo to show Petit in the clouds, hanging in the clouds, just this black speck. You can't even see the wire, just a black speck hovering somehow miraculously between these two buildings. And when I see that moment, even as I see it today, I feel like his friend recounting that moment. I'm overcome by emotion. And we do see some shots of the crowd finally taking notice of him and they look up and I just think about what that crowd of people must have thought where they're they're witnessing a once in a lifetime thing. They're witnessing an untethered, unprotected man floating in the sky, basically, and all the skill and the fearlessness that he is displaying to them. It's almost as if they must be asking themselves, what what is man capable of? Their entire notion of what mankind can do should have been altered in that moment, looking up at the sky. That's how I feel. When I watch Man on Wire. Yeah, you know why Man on Wire works that way, I think, is because despite the interviews that you, you do hear directly from the subjects, it doesn't overexplain all of these things you're talking about, no. right? It, it allows just enough mystery so that you feel this directly as you're watching the movie rather than having it explained to you. So, yeah, it makes sense that you've got that on this list. It's in the penalty box is probably a good reason I should mention that. This is the Alhazar Baltazar Memorial okay. for me, which I don't. Did we put that in the Pantheon? I don't it's remember. Not in if the it, I don't think it is, but I've I've got it set aside at least. So okay. that's why it won't be coming up here. Instead, I'm going to go with a little more of an unusual choice at number two. It's Leviathan. Now, I know people, you're laughing already. Oh God, the fish heads, really? I know people were puzzled when I named this as my favorite film We're of all just the heads of fish floating, I, tr- I tried to explain to you all, Adam, at the live show that uh-huh. year when I showed you the tried. fish heads. Yep. <laughs> that didn't seem to convince anyone. Let me try again. Let me put Leviathan into this religious experiences context. Now, first for those who forgot, because you know people aren't watching Leviathan Monthly, I know this. This is the immersive documentary that's set on a commercial fishing vessel. It's off the coast of New England, and they put multiple cameras, which captured all sorts of visual bits and pieces. And then these are presented without comment. So it almost becomes really a piece of abstract art. I just loved getting lost in all this, even the long scenes of the fish parts sloshing back and forth on the deck. There is, though, this goes to what you said at the top about a singular moment working for you in this way. There is this particular instance where the movie really did connect with me on a spiritual level. Now, a lot of this imagery is grungy stuff, right? Actual guts. There's machinery. There's oil. It's dirty. But then at one point, I think I've talked about this before, we get that sight of seagulls. At night, they're floating off in the distance alongside the ship. And I've described it how these white flapping wings are like persistent heartbeats in the darkness. When I first saw this, all I can say is that it like it welled up within me this intense feeling of hope. So a very concrete idea that this image embodied, not not human optimism, not like I, I hope we have good weather tomorrow, but deep religious hope. This sense that in the midst of all this man-made chaos that we've been seeing, There's a sign of something else. It captures, I think, a persistent faithfulness, even in the face of a world that sometimes feels like it's going to grind you up. There's something about, I think, the abstractness 
exactly of Mm -hmm. this imagery that does manage to capture an idea better than any explanation or words could. Maybe going back to what you said about Man on Wire there. Now, what's even odder? We saw this movie together. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. Sitting next to me, you had no idea (laughs) idea. that this is what Leviathan was doing to me. I know. I think it just speaks to how personal (laughs) these experiences are, right? Yeah, I was so just going to say that, that it's the only film probably on either of our lists that we saw together, literally sitting right next to each other. And what's so great about the movies is while you were there next to me having this religious experience you were snoring. i was wondering if i left the iron on <laughs> yes exactly so i'm just so glad you didn't ruin it for me <laughs> no i did not okay great pick despite my overall lukewarm reaction to that film my number two is a movie you have not seen josh though i have some indicators from our little slack group that our wonderful producer might be as we speak about to embark on halfway through the religious experience that is Carl Theodore Dreyer's or death. Oh, I wanted to watch it. I knew you were going to put it on. I talked about it last week. Just I didn't hinted, get to it. I hinted about this film. Go ahead, spoil. No, I'm not going to. I'm no. really not. No, because that's how strongly I feel about this movie. It's from 1955. It's a Danish film that certainly more people are more likely to watch The Game or Dark City ahead of this, but I feel so connected to this film and want everyone to have the experience I had with it that I'm not going to ruin it. So I'm not going to spoil it. So I will be very vague about details here. And I will acknowledge that as we talk about the penalty box, this is a movie that has come up on a couple top five lists recently and only recently because I just saw it two summers ago for another one of my classes about spiritual crises in cinema. I basically did that topic to force myself to watch Ordet and reckon with it, and I'm so glad I did. It was on episode 583 and 593, those top five. So it's penalty box due. But the fact is, as I thought about this personal list and the power of this film, I simply could not leave it off. And it definitely is the most overtly religious of all the films on my list. It's basically a domestic drama. takes place in rural Denmark. You have a family, the Borgens, a widower. He's the patriarch, and he has three sons. How about this spectrum, Josh? One of them is still pretty young, and he's mostly just focused on trying to marry the girl from the other religious sect nearby. One has no faith, but is married to a very pious, wonderful woman named Inger, and the other believes he's Jesus Christ. He basically went crazy studying the work of Kierkegaard and now believes that he's Jesus and roams around the wheat fields espousing his gospel. Again, I'm going to be vague here. I don't want to spoil it. It's the end of the film, or it's a few moments here before we get to the end of the film, but it involves Inger, the wife, and it also does involve Johannes, the one who believes he's Jesus, and something impossible happens. That's the only word I can think to use, and it works, Josh, because as we were getting some responses to this topic last week, we heard from Nick Fulton, who is at From Akron, Ohio on Twitter, and he said, or that's the movie you were teasing, right? You're definitely going to put it on the top five. And I said, I kind of wish I could come up with something else, but yeah, I don't see how I can leave it off. And he said, what can be said? It's a perfect ending. It's impossible yet inevitable. And I love that description. I don't know if Nick, when he wrote it, thought he was saying something really profound on Twitter, but it really stuck with me because I think it's as good a description of the types of moments I ultimately landed on for this list. It goes back to that sense of Philippe Petit in Man on Wire, just knowing he was going to step out on that wire, even though he knew what the risks were. It works for Dark City and it works for the game as well. The only possible conclusion to these films, and certainly to Ordet, 
is what happens, and yet they are incomprehensible. And Josh, what is death, ultimately, if not impossible? We can't really comprehend what happens to us when we die, and yet it is inevitable. And the impossible-slash-inevitable moment that occurs at the end of our debt, I think, will challenge both the most ardent believers and non-believers. So think about being able to pull off that somehow. It may think, no matter what side you're on, to rethink whether or not that's the side you want to be on. It forces you to consider the director as a god, almost, who plays by his own set of rules that defy our understanding. And you can, as a viewer, choose to love or rebuke that god for the choice he makes. It forces you to really confront the tenuousness of life, ours as individuals, those we've loved, what we'd sacrifice for them. It's just overwhelming in a way that exceeds any other movie I can think of that makes me feel either joy or sadness. And it's simultaneous. Every time I talk about Ordet, I fear that I'm overselling it. All I can tell you is this is the best way to articulate the experience I had. I don't know that it really will be that same experience for everyone who watches the film, but it is on some level a magical film. I do think it's fair to call it a masterpiece, and I do hope more people see it. Well, it is officially on. I was just checking my letterboxed blind spotting list. So that gives it a much better chance. Besides the fact of you're talking about it on recent shows has made me think I've really got to get to it. So soon. All right. We promised we would hear again from Trey Schultz, director of It Comes at Night, which opens this weekend. Adam, in your interview, in your conversation, you told him the top five we Mm -hmm. were working on and asked if he had anything that came to mind he might want to share for it. Turns out the film he picked also ended up being number one for both of us. That's true. Though, unlike him... We didn't work on this movie. Let's hear Trey and his experience working on his number one religious experience at the movies. First thing instantly when you told me about this was The Tree of Life. Um, And it's very strange, that one, because shots I worked on are in that movie. So it's very meta, but I didn't work on the bulk of the film. I I wasn't there for any of the Texas stuff. It's like the only stuff I was there for was sort of the birth of the universe sequences. So to see this whole other narrative I didn't know anything about and with the stuff I shot um, was surreal. But beyond that, like the movie just blew me away. Uh, I remember seeing it with my mom and we were both a sobbing mess. Hmm. Um, I think it's so ambitious and – uh, there's a line Jessica Chastain says towards the end of the movie. It's something like if you forget to love, your life's going to pass by or yeah. something. Uh, every time I hear that, it just kills me. Um, and I think there's so much beauty in that movie. And it m- makes me contemplate my small place in this entire mm-hmm. universe. and makes you think about, um, you know, just the sheer fact that he amazingly captures the intimacy of this family contrasted with like the birth of the universe to the right. death of the universe and whatever you interpret the end with the beach as mm-hmm. but it's uh i think it's an insanely beautiful ambitious movie it's probably not a perfect movie i don't care uh one of my favorites i've ever seen and once again just seeing the shots that i was there for in the context of that was another meta humbling thing that like I could have some really small uh-huh. fraction of this huge inspiring piece of art and it made me even deeper into like just like thinking of my own little existence in the bigger scheme of things. <laughs> right. Well, from here on out, you get to tell people that you had a role in creating the universe. Yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> That's the scene. 
tray worked on really? the moment itself. Yeah, that's amazing. I'll never forget, you know, going into the press showing for the Tree of Life. It was at the smaller screening room they have here in Chicago. I knew nothing about this creation sequence that suddenly blooms in the midst of this story. That's, you know, otherwise about these three brothers growing up in suburban 1950s Texas. Rather than taking me out of the narrative, though, I know some people experience it that way. I was more like Trey. It just enveloped me completely. Now, I put this at number one because it was both a transcendent and a transporting experience for me. It took me somewhere. It took me to the beginning of time, to that Genesis narrative that's so crucial to this Christian understanding, this contention that the world was created good. It was very good. Now, the imagery alone is astounding. You know I'm a sucker for nature cinematography. Mm -hmm. But add that vocal piece, Lacrimosa 2 by Zbigniew Preisner. This was like the 2001 Stargate sequence for me, except that, you know, rather than buzz my mind, it just spoke right to my soul. Mm -hmm. Here's what I wrote in my 2011 review. I can understand why some viewers would have trouble with the movie's cosmological flourishes, yet therein lies its greatness. Without the existential additives, the scenes of pen wandering lonely landscapes, of dinosaurs contemplating life and death, the Tree of Life would simply be a visually sumptuous, unusually perceptive coming-of-age tale. With them, it's far greater, nothing less than a thundering spiritual experience. So yeah, had to be on my list and landed right at number one. Yeah, had to be on my list as well, and I'm with you in placing it at number one, though. If I had to pick a specific scene, and I really didn't isolate a moment from this film because I knew it was just a slam dunk to make this list, especially after Trey picked it out as his number one religious experience, but for me, it's not the origin of the universe sequences that really humble me as much as I appreciate them. It's those early scenes of the family in Waco, the way time is compressed, the temporal experience of watching the way Malik uses time and space on screen and compresses it. It becomes its own piece of art. It takes everything that's on display there, the acting, the camera work, the editing, the music, and it makes it something else completely. That's how I felt watching it. Mm -hmm. And it also then was put back on me as a father, where I started thinking about the way I romanticize or can wax nostalgic about my own upbringing and thinking about me now as a father of four kids and whether or not I'm providing those types of experiences for my kids. So in a moment, if you think about it, watching The Tree of Life, I become, just over the course of five or ten minutes, I become... My current self, my former self, my future self, you in sound, a way. You sound like me talking about Back yeah. to the Future. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. I mean, I think Back to the Future is right there on the same For the record, I, level. I, I do think The Tree of Life is better than okay. Back to the Future. I'm glad you put that out there, Josh. So that would be my choice for scene or sequence from The Tree of Life that really emerges as my religious experience. And we talked about it when we recently did our Pantheon Contenders, and we put the Apu Trilogy in the film spotting Pantheon. It goes away so that we can never talk about it again. Maybe someday Ordet and Man on Wire will get there. Maybe Balthazar will get there. It, too, was a contender. But I think with this list, this placement at number one, Trey weighing in as well, it's time, isn't it, Josh? Let's do it. Let's cue the music. I'll be right here. We 
commit your final mortal remains to the bosom of the Pacific Ocean, which you love so well. Good night, sweet prince. The Tree of Life officially where it belongs in the film spotting pantheon. And those are our top five religious experiences at the movies. Any other films you want to mention? Yeah, well, first, you know, we really did get a lot of really moving responses to this on social media. So I just want to thank the people who came to the Larson on Film Facebook page where we had some wonderful stuff. And I want to share just one that we got. It's from Marin Gazina. I thought this was lovely. Toy Story 3, the moment in the incinerator. There's a divine intervention that's both completely a joke and, for me, deeply profound. Being saved by the very things you never took seriously and thought you were so much more clever than. For me, this truly may be one of the most profound payoffs in movie history. It's connected to an experience of unearned compassion and grace. You did nothing for it. You haven't earned it. You were wrong on so many levels. Yet here it is, grace. All right. Honorable mentions of mine. I think there's more grace at work in the Steve James documentary, The Interrupters, about violence prevention specialists here in Chicago. Grace is all over the scene where Maya shares her wig with Cindy in film spotting golden brick winner Tangerine. For me, watching Apichapong Rastaku's Cemetery of Splendor last year was... Thank you. That was a religious experience, though. Not Christian at all, but certainly takes us to, you know, a thin place of transcendence, I would say. Andre Tarkovsky, you mentioned Solaris at the top here. I think his stuff is almost always a religious experience. My most recent one was with nostalgia. But again, really any of his work can function this way. Oh, lastly here, Lars von Trier. I went with Breaking the Waves, but we did get a voicemail offering another pick. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Lauren Bycroft from Eatontown, New Jersey, checking in with my number one religious experience at the movies. It definitely took a little contemplation to work my way through the films that have really affected me. I had to sort through the Yojimbos and the Red Shoeses, movies that, as Josh said, opened my eyes to what movies could be to get to the really personal stuff. And ultimately, I landed on Lars von Trier's Melancholia. No film, no matter what category you put it in, has ever affected me as deeply as this one. I actually felt heavy and weighed down by the experience for a few days afterwards. Von Trier's films often stay with you, I think, given how provocative they can be, but Melancholia basically haunted me for a while. It's executed a little more deftly and delicately than the average Von Trier movie, and something about the beautiful, dreamlike imagery really lowered my defenses. Before I knew it, I was thinking about life, death, what it all means... Is everything futile because we all die, or is everything incredibly meaningful because it's so finite? So yeah, it's safe to say Melancholia really walloped me. Thanks for the great show, guys. Keep up the excellent work. Melancholia is a trip. I think that's a great choice. Thank you, Lauren. I just want to go back real quick. Josh Marin, did you check with her how to pronounce her last name? I think we may need to add that to the pronunciation guide. I think I checked that with uh, Forvo, but not Marin. (laughs) Yeah. That's wrong? Marin, let us know. I don't know. It just sounded off to me, but oh, I thought, what do I, I know? I thought you knew Marin. No. Nope. I, I thought you guys were buddies. No, and... we're not buddies. Okay. So the only other films I really strongly considered beyond all those mortality movies I mentioned were The Mirror, which was my favorite movie from our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. It is that meta moment, the breaking the fourth wall moment with the girl on the bus. I thought about Tower in the scene I played at our 2016 rap party from my favorite film of last year, that documentary. And I thought about the end of Knights of Kiberia, Giulietta Messina's face at the end of that Fellini film. And one more, Josh, from a listener that I think also came from your 
Facebook page in the comments. And of course, I'm featuring it because it is in relation to one of my all-time favorite movies and my all-time favorite Woody Allen movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Yeah, I saw Matt that. This was Thurston, good. Thurston, yeah, wrote this. In general, but especially the dinner scene. I was raised an Orthodox Mormon, but lost my faith in the religion and my belief in God in my early 30s. Still, I maintain a connection to and affection for my extended Mormon family and culture. This scene perfectly encapsulates the spectrum from doubt, skepticism, to faith, belief, and the pragmatic middle that exists in my extended family. Substitute Mormonism for Judaism and that is my family dinner. And yet, as I look around the dinner table, both in this film and in my real life, on every point on that doubt-to-faith spectrum, I find myself with beating heart, with love in their breast, with a will to live and understand their purpose on this planet. Somewhere in this discussion between family members, in this endless debate, is what I call God. Listeners were all over this Man, one, Matt, weren't they? can you just do all my top five lists? I need to get a <laughs> committee of listeners together to make these picks for me because they are so eloquent. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everyone who wrote in. And I hope we will get to so many more of these comments and voicemails in future episodes. Just couldn't squeeze them all in here. Again, our top five religious experiences at the movies. We would love to hear your picks. Keep the feedback coming. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's where you can also send us a voicemail. Just email us an MP3. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking which of 2017's three remaining superhero movies are you most looking forward to? If you haven't already, we also encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. Find both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, my cousin Rachel, starring Rachel Vice in wide release, Megan Levy from the director of the acclaimed 2013 documentary Blackfish about killer whales in captivity. Levy is based on the true life story of a young Marine corporal played by Kate Mara, whose bond with her military combat dogs saved many lives during their deployment in Iraq. The Mummy, the new one starring Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's in The Mummy, too. He's kicking off the dark universe, Adam. Come on, get oh, with it. That's right. Are you excited that. about this? Yep. I yep. can see it. Let's move I right along. It. it Comes at Night, the latest from Trey Schultz, starring Joel Edgerton and Carmen Ajogo. We hope everyone will get a chance to see it this weekend. And then tune in next week here to the show as Michael Phillips and I will review it and share our top five movies about grief. We promise it'll be a rollicking good time. If you have a favorite movie about grief you'd like to share, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's where you can also send us an MP3 file or call our voicemail line 312 264 I think we're going to be due for a really silly top five after Great. that one. Great. Movie, Manimals. We did that. Part two. Oh, yeah, because you weren't here, and, and I know <laughs> yeah, that I kills you. I didn't get to share my picks. I can't wait to the hear The world them. needs to know. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. We want to thank Candace Griffiths as well and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Hey, we also have a favor. If you like the show, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We want to find new listeners. This is a great way to do that. Our music this week came from Secret Sisters. Learn more about them at secretsistersband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film spotting is listener supported. 
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.